It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... The rise of a Chinese tech giant. Baidu is the latest that wants to raise fresh capital. How face masks give the immune system a helping hand. The mask itself isn't filtering out the viruses. It's helping the upper respiratory tract to do its job and keep the bugs from getting to places where they can cause damage. And are cities bad for your health? And do they have to be? the urban poor in these cities, even though they have better access to health care, could end up with poorer health. But first, need a quick answer to a question? Google it. But if you're in China, you can't. The search engine is banned because of government censorship. Instead, the country's leading search engine is Baidu. In 2007, it was the first Chinese company to be included on the Nasdaq 100, the tech-heavy American share index. In the Chinese tech market, Baidu has dominated search, but not other rapid growth areas where its rivals lead, such as Alibaba, an e-commerce site, and Tencent, which runs WeChat. But Baidu's share price has soared recently. It plans a secondary listing in Hong Kong, which is set to start trading next week. This listing tells us that Chinese tech is, without a doubt, the liveliest part of China's private sector. James Yan is a China correspondent at The Economist. The past year has seen prominent listings or secondary listings by Chinese tech firms like NetEase and JD.com. Baidu is the latest tech giant that wants to raise fresh capital. It could raise around $4 billion next week. So what is Baidu and how much is it valued at? So Baidu is China's most popular search engine. It was founded in the year 2000 when the internet penetration rate in China was just 2%. Uh, Last year, Baidu reported an average of 538 million monthly active users, which is around six times the total that Baidu's next three rivals in China had combined. And in addition to its core search engine, Baidu runs over a dozen other consumer-facing services. For example, Baidu Maps, which is similar to Google Maps, and Baidu Tieba, which resembles Reddit. The share price of Baidu has tripled from a year earlier, taking its market cap to around 90 billion U.S. dollars. And that makes Baidu China's sixth most valuable listed internet company. Now, other search engines have suffered in the last year because of the pandemic and the resulting drop in ad revenue. Has this affected Baidu? Yes, that's right. Very much so. So advertising revenues account for the vast majority of Baidu's total revenues, around 80% in a typical year. 
This revenue stream has indeed suffered during the pandemic as businesses have cut back their marketing budgets. So last year, ad revenues from Baidu's main search engine fell by 5% year on year. Even as the Chinese economy bounces back, though, revenues from advertising are unlikely to grow as fast as they once did. And that's because the supply of ad space on Chinese digital platforms has multiplied in recent years. Chinese businesses can now choose from a wide array of tech platforms on which to spend their marketing budgets, from video apps like Kuaishou to e-commerce apps like Pinduoduo. But the good news for Baidu is that its executives are aware of this trend and they are committed to diversifying the business. Okay, so what does diversification mean for Baidu? Right, so Baidu is doing this in several ways. Uh, Last November, Baidu acquired a video sharing and live streaming app called YY Live for $3.6 billion. This is a sign that Baidu wants to boost its presence in the entertainment space to compete more effectively with the likes of Kuaishou and Douyin, which is the Chinese version of TikTok. Baidu is also investing heavily in cloud services to keep up with the two leaders in this field, namely Alibaba Cloud and Tencent Cloud. Revenues from cloud make up around 10% of Baidu's revenues today, but this proportion is expected to rise in the next few years. But perhaps the most ambitious initiative that Baidu has announced is what the company calls intelligent driving. This segment hardly contributes any revenues today, but could very well be the main engine of growth in the future. Now, all the sectors that you've identified are pretty crowded. And for intelligent driving in China, the name that first brings to mind is the local Uber clone called Didi. So how is Baidu planning on taking on the competition? Baidu's intelligent driving business has a number of objectives. The most ambitious one is to establish a nationwide fleet of robo-taxis powered by Baidu's in-house self-driving technology called Apollo. And this is where it competes with with Didi. Uh, Baidu's self-driving taxis already operate in three Chinese cities, including the capital city of Beijing. The rides are currently free to the public as a promotional strategy, but Baidu has recently indicated that it wants to eventually monetize this new business by charging passengers for rides, thereby unlocking a recurring revenue stream. Whether Baidu can raise uh, prices quickly is another question. As you point out, Didi is also active in this space. Didi is rolling out robo-taxis in Shanghai and across China. So competition will no doubt be fierce. But Baidu does hold one major advantage over Didi in the sense that if Didi were to expand its robo-taxi fleet too aggressively, it may cannibalize its existing human-operated ride-hailing business whereas Baidu does not face this risk of cannibalization. Many of the activities that Baidu is in are ones that look similar to Western search engines and and web platforms. You've noted yourself Google Maps and Waymo in the case of self-driving cars. So I wonder, is Baidu doing anything that is different than what's happening by Google and other web platforms in the West, something that's more unique? One aspect that differentiates Baidu is that it is a majority shareholder in one of China's most popular movie streaming services called ITE. The equivalent analogy in the West would be Google controlling Netflix. It's interesting that they're going for a Hong Kong listing, staying in the Chinese sphere of influence, rather than a Western one. How should I read that in terms of the geopolitics of technology? 
Baidu is already listed on the NASDAQ. Now it wants to list in Hong Kong. The secondary listing may be interpreted as a hedge against regulatory and political risk, uh, all the more so given that Baidu has international ambitions. What sort of international ambitions? So to give you one example, a couple months ago, Baidu received a permit from the state of California to test self-driving cars in that state. Now, whether Baidu robo-taxis can be rolled out in California and America is another question. And the main impediments, I think, will be of a political variety. As Baidu gains prominence in America going forward, governments and consumers will start asking tough questions like, how deep is the relationship between Baidu and China's government? Will Baidu protect personal data? And these are the sorts of questions that Baidu will have to grapple with in the years to come. I think thus far, Baidu has been sheltered from such questions because its main search engine is used mainly in China and by the Chinese-speaking diaspora. Uh, my guess is that most people in the West have never typed in a search query in Baidu, so they may not be that familiar with the company. Do you think that consumers around the world are ready to accept Chinese technology companies, or will they be suspicious that this is Chinese influence by other means? Well, I think it's difficult to say at this point. Uh, Baidu is a private company, but on the other hand, its executives do have quite good relations with the Communist Party of China. So I think these links will be scrutinized by people in the West, by consumers and governments alike. So convincing the people in the West that Baidu is a private company that's there to do business and does not have other motives, I think will be a big challenge for Baidu in the years to come. James Yan, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. For more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. In this week's science section, you can read about ears in the sky, how by listening for radio and radar signals, a new generation of satellites can track human activity, both legal and illicit. And it can track Babbage listeners, too. Who can get a special introductory offer by going to economist.com slash podcast offer? The link is in the show notes. Next, since early on in the pandemic, it became clear that wearing masks reduces the spread of COVID-19. A study by the University of California looked at epidemiological data on cruise ships in 2020. On the Diamond Princess, where there was little mask wearing, 20% of COVID cases were asymptomatic. On a different cruise, where there was universal mask wearing, 81% of COVID-19 cases were asymptomatic. And if it's asymptomatic, it means that people are not only not showing the symptoms, they're not feeling the symptoms either. It's a striking statistic, implying that mask wearing also reduces the severity of COVID-19 disease if a wearer is infected. But the reason behind this benefit is unclear, and it's been debated in the scientific community. Now evidence is emerging that the masks induce a second line of defense against the coronavirus. The thing is, it's counterintuitive. Wearing a mask should prevent you getting ill, but when you do get ill, it shouldn't affect how ill you get. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. And this is particularly true with the really commonly used cotton masks. Now, of course, we all are familiar with the idea of viral load, in which if you have less of the virus coming at you all at once at the early stage of the infection, that you'll have a less severe case, a little bit like if you're poisoned with a little bit of poison versus more of it. But here it's not a case of viral load, is it? No, it's not. The cotton masks are allowing very small particles to still migrate through, 
And these very small particles are the ones that are able to lodge very deep in your lungs. And if the virus can make headway down in your lungs, that's what initiates severe disease. And so the cotton masks don't really mitigate against that. At least we don't think so. So it has led to the question of why on earth do cotton masks still seem to reduce severe disease from developing? And so what's the working hypothesis? So the theory that Dr. Courtney and Dr. Bax have at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, is that this is all down to humidity. There's a system in your upper respiratory tract called the mucociliary clearance mechanism. It's made of mucus and it's made of cilia. Cilia are these little hairs that help move mucus along and mucus, well, it's mucus, it's snot. It's produced by your sinuses and it travels through your upper respiratory passages down into your throat and down to your stomach. And the whole system depends upon there being a lot of moisture. When there is, then the mucus snags all kinds of nasty stuff, including viruses, transfers it down into the stomach where it gets burned up and destroyed. One of the the ideas behind why diseases do so much better in wintertime is because during winter, humidity goes down. Things get colder, things get drier, and your upper respiratory tract has less humidity available to it to get this mucus moving, and that defense mechanism is weakened. So I think what you're saying is that the masks can provide the humidity that's required. That's exactly it. And what was particularly important was the masks were able to provide this increased level of humidity when our upper respiratory tract needs it most. So the researchers created a box to breathe into, and then they breathed into this box in a bunch of different environments with different types of masks sealed in front of the box so that they could monitor how much humidity they would breathe out of their lungs when they didn't have a mask on versus how much humidity they would breathe into the box when they were wearing a mask. So for example, in the warm room, they found that the relative humidity of inspired air was increased by the cotton mask by over 50%. But that's nothing compared to how well the cotton masks performed in the cold room. With masks like N95s, the levels got pretty high. I mean, humidity was increased by 150 to 200%. But what was astonishing was with the cotton mask, the levels rose to 300%. And in the process of increasing that humidity, it's helping the cilia move the mucus along and get the stuff that it snares into the stomach where it can be destroyed. So what sort of masks should people be wearing? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that an N95 respirator PPE mask is going to do a phenomenal job of keeping all kinds of viruses out of the upper respiratory system in the first place. The viruses can't even get through it into the mouth and the nose. So obviously that's ideal. But what's really interesting here is that with a heavy cotton mask, which lets stuff through, because the cotton mask is holding back so much humidity, it's helping the immune system in the upper respiratory tract to do its job better. So I would still recommend if you're going to go into a hot zone and be exposed to a ton of virus, I would want a very tightly fitting N95. But for everyday use, the heavy cotton masks actually have a real benefit here, assuming that this research is correct. Let me pick up on that, because reality doesn't always reflect lab conditions. How applicable is this research? So you're right, but under these circumstances, the researchers were able to demonstrate pretty clearly that breathing through a cotton mask increases their relative humidity in their upper respiratory systems by quite a lot. And having more humidity is just better 
for keeping the immune system working up there and getting the mucus clearance to work in the way it's supposed to. So there certainly is an argument for this to be tested more widely and outside the lab, but the results are pretty convincing. And more importantly, the physics just makes sense. So masks are good. We know that. Should we always be wearing them out in public, like when we go to the supermarket, even after COVID? No, that's an interesting question. Uh, I have no idea where the culture of the UK and other Western nations is going to go. You can certainly look to Eastern Asia, where masks have become commonplace even outside of pandemic periods. And that's because those cultures have had serious brushes with very dangerous upper respiratory diseases in the past, like SARS-CoV-1. Whether or not our brush with SARS-CoV-2 is going to lead people in British culture to start wearing masks all the time, I don't know. Uh, There was certainly an argument during cold and flu season for people to wear cotton masks based upon this research. Whether or not it will drive them to do that is a different matter. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. This week, many European countries halted the rollout of the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine amid concerns over blood clots. It didn't prevent me from getting one this week, but the European Medicines Agency and the World Health Organization say they are firmly convinced that the vaccine's benefits outweigh any risks. Tim Cross, our technology editor, has been explaining to The Intelligence, our daily podcast, what the impact of these suspensions may be. On the one hand, maybe if they take this ultra-cautious approach, people will think, well, they're checking everything, they're being as open as possible, so I'll trust them. On the other hand, you could see people saying, well, I keep hearing about the AstraZeneca vaccine in the news, and now they've suspended rolling it out. What's going on here? Should I trust this thing? It's very hard to know which is the right answer. The only thing we do know, slightly depressingly, is that history suggests that once these doubts get established, they can be very, very hard to shift. You can find Wednesday's episode of The Intelligence on your podcast app. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, around the world, cities drawing people. But if you compare how fast different cities are growing, you get wildly different answers. Work from the London School of Economics finds that in older, richer cities, the growth is relatively low. Every hour, 10 people move to London. Compare that to Lagos, where 56 people per hour are arriving to start new lives in what is already a megacity of over 20 million people. In Delhi, the figure is 75 people per hour. Now, individuals uproot their lives in search of better education, job prospects, and of course, better health care. But the fast growth in some cities, especially in Africa and parts of Asia, poses huge health problems of its own. And in an age of pandemics, new solutions must be found to solve them. So there's two myths that I try to bust in my work. Dr. Tallulah Oni is an urban epidemiologist at the University of Cambridge and the founder of the Urban Better Project. She's trying to solve the public health crises of the cities of the future before they happen. 
The first is that healthcare is a synonym for health. So access to healthcare is a critical part of getting and keeping healthy. But we know that over 80% of factors that influence health lie outside of healthcare. And the second myth I try to bust in my work is that health trickles down from good intentions. We see move to urban as a modernization and we associate these things with health and well-being. And evidence has shown that if you don't actually focus on protecting and maintaining health, it doesn't necessarily follow. And the reason why is because you have a wide and growing inequality in these cities where you end up with a situation where the urban poor even though they have better access to health care than, say, their rural counterparts in terms of geographical access, could end up with poorer health because of the environment in which they live, in which they work. Because of this fast-paced urbanization, what are the sorts of specific health challenges that you are most concerned about? So I think about exposure to waste and water pollution and the impacts on sanitation and hygiene, which have knock-on effects on infectious disease. I think about access to healthy foods and the environment. So we know that there is in many cities a higher concentration of unhealthy foods in more deprived areas in in cities. And that impacts on diet, which impacts on conditions like obesity and diabetes, high blood pressure, which have significant impacts for premature mortality. I think about the built environment and whether that is supportive of physical activity. So in terms of being able to walk or cycle, the risk of injury or safety that's associated with walking or or being in public space, which has implications not just for those non-chemical diseases like diabetes, but also for mental health in the context of safety. So you'll note that none of those lie within what we would traditionally consider the healthcare sector. I'm wondering what role technology can play in all of this and and innovation. So one of the critical opportunities is thinking about health surveillance beyond disease surveillance and think, can we find more innovative ways of integrating data across not just healthcare outcomes and disease, but also across all these determinants to really be able to better understand what the impact of changes in one environment on population health down the line. And at the moment, a lot of those data are very siloed in different sectors. I think also our definition of innovations is very narrow. I premise that by saying because some of the most innovative practices that I've seen are around innovations in terms of process, in terms of the ways in which knowledge is generated, in the ways in which solutions are generated. And really key to that is participation and ground up approaches. So what are good examples of current best practices or pilot programs that are making a difference that you're inspired by that can give us a vision for the future. In Lagos, the low-lying coastal city, there are examples of community resilience action projects between the community, the government and academics, looking at understanding how those communities have actually adapted over time to the regular floodings, to the high land temperatures, and to learn from that and to develop interventions based on that expertise, rather than coming in to say, oh, we we try this in some other place and we, we've got this technology and we want to roll it out here. And so those are some of the really innovative practices that we're starting to see. Perhaps with COVID-19, people can understand better the need to take a more preventative, long-term policy approach to 
understanding healthcare, using data, etc. Do you see any changes coming out of the pandemic? In this moment, in this last year, we've taken a moment, we've paused, you know, we've seen inequalities that we had previously ignored. So the question becomes, if during the pandemic, we thought this inequalities were unacceptable, how do we ensure that we don't go back to that old normal where people despite being in close proximity, have unequal access to healthy eating or physical activity or clean air, etc. And key to that is aligning our societal systems and increasing that demand for healthy, sustainable places, as well as thinking about how to increase the supply of health. Dr. Tallulah Oni, thank you very much. Thank you. We spoke to Dr. Oni at the Commonwealth Science Conference 2021. You can hear her talk in full at royalsociety.org. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters so much so that more people can be part of the Babbage community. The producers are Jason Hosken the amazing Abby Soye Oshindairo, and the brilliant Amika Shortino-Nolan. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Kenneth The Voice Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.